Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. The book of Genesis is called the book of beginnings. Remember, we touched on some of those things, you know, back in the early chapters of Genesis. And we saw in the first two chapters of Genesis that this perfect, holy, eternal God created a very good world. That He created this world and on this planet Earth, there was this wonderful garden that He created and He created the man and the woman to reflect his very image, to reflect his very character, to be his representatives on this earth, to reflect his rule and his reign. And they were tasked with ruling and exercising dominion over the earth and and multiplying and filling the earth. Why? So that God's rule and God's glory would fill the entire earth. So that God's kingdom would be established on this earth and He would get all the glory. And yet, man rebelled against God. With everything that God had given to man, man rebelled against this good and powerful and wonderful maker. And even there, God in His grace promised the man that one day the seed of the woman would come and He would crush the head of the serpent. And Satan would be defeated. And this curse and sin and everything else would be removed. And God would have a world again that would reflect His glory. He would establish His kingdom once again. And His plan to do that was through this promised seed. And then we saw as... As years went by, and for us it's been chapters, man continues to be sinful. We saw that with the account of Noah and the flood and all that God did there. And then we saw how th- you know, God pressed the reset button and started anew, and then things went on, and then we come to the Tower of Babel where everything is still very much the same. And yet God doesn't destroy mankind at the time, but disperses mankind and languages come out and and nations come through that. But God's plan is to still restore this world and establish His kingdom for His name's sake and to to ultimately have His Son be preeminent in the entire universe. And there we, that's where Abraham comes in from Genesis 12. And we've seen of how God is slowly working in the life of Abraham, not just 
his life of faith and how he's growing in his faith. He's had his failures and all of that. But even through this man who is weak, God is still moving forward his plan of redemption. And this morning what we will see is really the, the, the power of God's word. And, and, and really just things about God's promises. I've titled this morning's sermon as God's word of promise. And what we'll see in the first seven verses is how God's promise is fulfilled. And then in verses 8 through 21, we see of how God's promise is rejected. And then in verses 22 to 34, we see how God's promise is reassured. And through all this, what we see is that God is working out His plan of redemption. And I trust that at the end of this, that we would be encouraged in God's word and what He says to be true. That we would be encouraged in God's promises. And it would keep us steadfast to live for Him in this sin-cursed world. To live steadfastly for Him in faith and in hope. So let's look, first of all, at God's promise fulfilled in verses 1 through 7. Now, from the end of Genesis 11, when the Lord called Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldeans from, from Babylonia, we are told that his wife Sarah was barren. That's how they introduced this family. And then we see of, we saw of how the Lord would bring about his redemptive plan through certain specific promises that he made to Abraham. The Lord promised Abraham that he would become a great nation and that he would, him and his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan and that he would be a blessing to the nation. And really central to these promises was the blessing of the seed or the blessing of the offspring. See, because without this offspring, without a child, there would be no great nation coming out of Abraham. And without a great nation, there would be no people then to occupy the land. And then consequently, then this nation occupying this promised land would not be a blessing to the other nations. So the promise of the offspring is key to the other promises being fulfilled. And, we, and if you also remember, if you've been with us for, uh, since Genesis 12, that when the journey started, Abraham was 75 years old, and that would make Sarah 65 years old. And years go by, 
without the promise of the seed being fulfilled. And the two of them, as years go by, are getting older and older and older. But during those 25 years, the Lord would come to them again and again. He would come to Abraham and tell him that he would have a son. And the Lord would make it more and more specific as the years go past. In fact, in Genesis 17 and 18, the Lord then even very specifically tells Abraham and Sarah now that one year from now, you will have a son. And now that time has come. Look at verse 1. It says, the Lord visited Sarah. Now this, this term, visited, it, it means that the Lord intervened in a special way. You know, in Genesis 50, 24, the Joseph, just before he dies, he says that the Lord will visit the Israelites and take them out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. Meaning that the Lord would save these Israelites from Egypt. That he would specially intervene in their life and bring them to the promised land. Or in Ruth 1.6 where it says that the Lord visited the land, meaning the Lord specially intervened and the famine came to an end. So here in verse 1, as we're beginning here, it says, when it says the Lord visited Sarah, it means the Lord intervened in a special way to bring about the birth of this child. And notice the emphasis here on the fulfillment of God's word. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So the birth of this son is really the fulfillment of God's promise. As the Lord said, as he promised, at the time of which he spoke, this son was born. And really, when you look at these two verses, there's nothing in these two verses that indicates that there was anything special about Abraham or Sarah. And that's why they had this child. In fact, let's just think through how special Abraham and Sarah have been with regards to the promise of the child. I mean, they doubted God at different points regarding the birth of this child. They became impatient, even took things into their own hands by when Sarah suggests to Abraham to sleep with Hagar and they have a son. But that didn't bring about God's promised seed. Because God's promises will never come about by human effort. Then twice Abraham, to save his skin, lies about his wife and put his wife in danger. And even the promise of the seed was in jeopardy at the time. And then on top of that, we know that 
you know, just like I've mentioned before, we've known all along that Sarah was barren. And now it's not just that she's barren, they're an elderly couple. They're senior citizens plus plus. But despite all the doubts, all the foibles, all the failures through the years, and despite all the odds that seem to be there, a son, not a daughter, and exactly a year, so there were no delays in what God said, this child was born to this elderly couple, a hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. Why? Because the Lord said he would. It's as simple as that. The Lord said he would. The Lord is faithful and powerful to bring about what he has promised according to his perfect time. This is all of his work. Had nothing to do with Abraham or Sarah or their ability. You know, when we say something, when we you know, promise something, you know, while we may have every intention to keep that promise, we can't always keep our promises. See, because sometimes due to unforeseen circumstances, either we're not able to keep our promise, we're not able to keep our word, or other times we have to postpone it. Because we, we're like, hey, listen, I know I said this, but because of this, I can't do this right now. But that is never the case with God. The big point of these two verses is not to just, you know, to make us think about the joy of having a baby that Abraham and Sarah had after all these years. But more than that, it is a testimony to the fact that the Lord is faithful to keep His promise no matter what. His word never fails. Now, as we've looked at the life of Abraham, he's, you know, Ab Abraham is certainly a man of clay feet. He's had his share of failures. But at the end of the day, what you see in Abraham is he's repented. He comes back to the Lord and his life is marked by an increasing obedience to the Lord. And that's what we see here next then in Verses 3 and 4. It says, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. God commanded him to name the promised son as Isaac. He commanded him to circumcise every male when they were eight years old because that was a sign of the covenant. And that's exactly what Abraham does here as the Lord had commanded. Now verse 5, you know, to really highlight something. 
says Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Because it's highlighting the, the, the miraculous nature of this birth. Listen to what Hebrews 11, 11 and 12 says. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And therefore from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. See, both Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead when it came to their ability to have children. But God rejuvenated their bodies to have this child. This was not a normal birth. This was a supernatural work of God. And now the focus shifts to Sarah's reaction to this miraculous birth. Look at verses 6 and 7. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet, I have borne him a son in his old age. Sarah is marveling at what the Lord has done. And, and really, there's a play on words here. If you remember, the name Isaac means laughter or he laughs. That's what Isaac means. And so Sarah is saying, God has given me Isaac. And by giving me Isaac, meaning laughter, he has actually given me laughter. He's given me joy. And everyone who hears about it will also be joyful and in wonder about how this happened. Why, why, why will everyone also be in such, such wonderment? Because you don't hear about a hundred-year-old man or a 90-year-old woman giving birth to a baby and nursing him. That's not normal. That's not humanly possible. It's impossible, humanly speaking. And so there's even irony in what Sarah says in verse 7, where she says, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Why is that irony? Because what, we, what did we read in verses 1 and 2? We've just been reminded, as the Lord said, this birth has come about. Yes, no one from a human standpoint would expect this. Sarah was a barren woman, now 90 years old, her husband 100 years old, and it's humanly impossible to have a child. In fact, even Abraham and Sarah laughed about it when God initially said this to them, about this child. But now God is essentially showing that His Word will never fail. 
It always comes to pass. And the birth of this child is evidence of that fact. So much so that now everyone who hears of this birth throughout the land and beyond, when pagan idol worshippers and godless people when they hear about Abraham and Sarah and what has happened in their old age, they will know that God is true and powerful to bring about what He has promised. Because this is out of the ordinary. It's extraordinary. This is supernatural. What will be unmistakable to everyone is that this is the Lord's work. The Lord's word will never fail. This is what Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but, the, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So there's nothing that can stand in the way of what God has promised in his word. No circumstance, no human power, no powers of Satan or his demons, even our sinful choices, cannot keep God from bringing to pass what he has promised in his word. And so the Lord is teaching Abraham and Sarah and the rest of his people that he never fails. That his word is powerful and trustworthy and reliable. Why? Because he is powerful and trustworthy and reliable. And so therefore we must not doubt his word. You know, one of the things about God's word is that it is so powerful that when he says something or when he promises something, it is so powerful that what it accomplishes is always humanly impossible. Have you ever thought about that? Every promise of God is something that is humanly impossible. That's why God has to do it. Because otherwise you don't need God for that promise. Man can just do it and it can just happen. I mean, when you think about God's word, you, th you know, even just thinking about Genesis as we started with creation, we saw how powerful God's word was. He simply said, and as he said, very similar language, as he said, it came to be. He simply spoke it and it happened. And in six days, the entire universe was formed. 
regardless of what the world says. Yes, that's humanly impossible, but that points to the power of God's word. Then you think of Abraham as a pagan worshiper. He wasn't seeking after God. And yet God's powerful word comes to him and calls him out. And it wasn't like Abraham was so wonderful or you know, more smart or whatever that he kind of responded and turned around. He wasn't seeking after God. But it was the work of God's powerful work. Where this pagan worshiper then leaves everything, believes in the Lord and follows him. Humanly impossible? Yes. But is it, is it possible with God because God's word is so powerful? Yes. Then as we move on in scripture, we, you know, through Moses, God will tell the people that he will deliver his people from Egypt. Humanly impossible. I mean, this is Pharaoh and they've been there for 400 years. And yet, exactly as God said, he delivered them. Exactly as he promised, that happened. Humanly impossible, but because God said it, it is possible. Then for many years, God said he would send his son. The, the promised seed would come. And he would provide salvation for his people. But how, when we are born in sin, how is that humanly possible? Yeah, it's humanly impossible. And yet exactly as how God promised, the Lord Jesus came into this world. Lived that perfect life and died paying the price for sinful people like you and me. And provided a way of salvation where we can be forgiven of our sins, broken from the bondage of sin, and be given life in Him, that eternal life in Him, that salvation has been brought about exactly as God has promised. Brother, sister, if you're here, and you're a, you're a believer, you're a Christian, this is part of God's promise as well. Because God promised that he will have a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are part of that. That's God's promise coming to play. Humanly impossible? Yeah. But God said it. And you and I as Christians are evidence that what God says still comes true. God is continuing to fulfill his promises where he's saving more and more people to himself. Where he's changing you and me as believers more into the image of Christ. So that when we look back at our life, we're not saying, oh look, see how, look at the way I've become a strong Christian all with my effort. No, you look back at your life from where you started from where you were, and you look at your life now, you say, that was all of God. It's humanly impossible. But God has promised it, and that's what he's doing right now. That's how powerful his word is. 
Oh, there's promises yet to be fulfilled when Jesus returns. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. God's word and God's promises will never fail. So regardless of your life situation, regardless of how you may feel on any given day, go back to God's word and what he has said and what he has promised and remind yourself his word will come to pass. His word will never fail and live in light of this truth and live in hope in light of his word that never fails. We should never doubt God's word because of this fact. And that's basically what God is teaching Abraham and Sarah and even highlighting to us in this section. Yeah, you laughed, but I've turned that doubtful laugh into a joyful laugh. So much so that when everyone else will hear of it, they will also laugh in wonderment, thinking, how is this possible? That's right, because it will point to God's word will never fail. That is, promises will never fail. So that's God's word being fulfilled, and now we come to the promise being rejected. God's promise being rejected in verses 8 through 21. Verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now in those days, babies were weaned around the age of two or three. And when, the, and when this baby is weaned, Abraham throws a great party. Why? Because in those days, infant mortality was very high. You know, they didn't have any of these modern medical facilities that we have now. So it was a big thing for a child to, you know, by the time they're two or three, that this child is alive, and this clearly was a precious child, a promised child. And we know that th this child particularly is precious, not because this is the only child of an elderly couple, but this promised child, it is through this child, God's plan of redemption and God's promises would move forward through this child that is born. So that now there's great feasting and, and, and celebrating the life and health of this child and even celebrating the, the faithfulness of God and keeping his promise to keep this child safe and just in an ongoing way. But not everyone is joyous and celebrating at this time. Look at verse 9. 
But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now Ishmael at this point, so if you calculate, you know, when God gave the promise of the son and the sign of the circumcision and all of that, around that time, um, Ishmael was 13 years old. And so he's, he's probably around 16 years old now, Ishmael. So Ishmael is not a little baby. He's a teenager, you know, almost nearing a young adult. And it says that this 16-year-old teenager was laughing. Now laughing, it can, you know, it can be in a positive sense, like a joyful, fun kind of laughing. Or in a negative sense, like, like mocking or disdaining someone. In Ishmael's case, it, it's, it's a mocking or a demeaning, a, a cruel, ridiculing kind of laugh. And let me try and explain why. Well, first of all, there's a play on words here again. Remember, Isaac means laughter. What is Ishmael doing? He's laughing. Right? And the word in the original that's used of Ishmael, laughing, it's, it's in a very it's a intensive form of laugh, but it's the same word. And so what the text is alluding to is the fact that Ishmael is trying to assert himself forcefully as the true heir of Abraham. You know, where he's almost saying, Isaac, you mean laughter? No, I'm the true son of laughter. I'm the heir of Abraham. In a very intense, aggressive way. And when you think about it, you know, the Lord had promised in Genesis 16 and 17 that Ishmael would become a a great nation and, and kings would come from him. So he would have known those promises. So really, till Isaac was born, Ishmael was it. He was the sole heir of Abraham. But when baby Isaac was miraculously born, things changed. Ishmael would no longer be the sole heir. Because now God's promised child has been born. And Isaac would now get first dibs. And as far as Ishmael's character is concerned, even God has mentioned something of that when he, when he spoke to Hagar in Genesis 16, that Ishmael would be a wild donkey of a man. Meaning that he would be an aggressive, out-of-control kind of man who would fight with everyone, wanting to assert himself. A man with a serious temper problem. So given that context... When there's celebrations going about baby Isaac being weaned and now baby Isaac's been, become a toddler. And that, you know, everyone's talking about the fact that this toddler is now the promised child. The one through whom God's blessings and plan of redemption is going to move forward. The rightful heir of Abraham. This 16-year-old can't stand it. 
And Ishmael is demeaning and ridiculing and deriding this little toddler, Isaac. He's laughing and mocking Isaac. And what you see is, even by implication, is that Ishmael has no concern for God. He has no concern for whether God has miraculously brought this baby about or not, as he has promised. He has no concern about God's plan and purposes moving forward through Isaac. He's just rejecting it all. He's despising the promises of God. And he's making a mockery out of it all. And he's aggressively deriding this little toddler, this 16-year-old. And that's exactly why Paul, when we look at, when he looks at this chapter, he says in Galatians 4.29, that the son born according to the flesh, who is that? Ishmael. Persecuted the son born according to the spirit. Who is the son born, born according to the spirit? That's Isaac. That basically as Paul is looking at this text, he's saying, yeah, Ishmael was persecuting this little toddler. So what we have here then is like a Cain and Abel kind of situation. Or like Jacob and Esau. Cain was the seed of the serpent who attacked and killed Abel thinking that he would be the child of the promise. And then later, as we will see, another seed of the serpent, Esau, who when he realizes, oh, the promised child and all the blessings have gone to Jacob, he wants to kill Jacob, the promised seed. So it's a similar situation here. Ishmael is the son born of sin, the son of the flesh, essentially the seed of the serpent. And Isaac is the son of the promise, the son born supernaturally, the seed of the promised line. And there's a conflict now going on between the two lines, between the two seeds. And so Sarah sees all this. And she's probably seen all this while as Ishmael has lived there, how Ishmael has no regard for the Lord and she's now seeing how aggressive this teenager is being toward her toddler. And even knowing something about Ishmael's out-of-control, aggressive behavior, Sarah now recognizes, oh, Ishmael is, poses as a real threat to Isaac. This teenage kid with a fit of rage could potentially kill my toddler. And really what is at stake is God's promised seed and ultimately his redemptive plan. And so then in verse 10, it says, So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. See, Sarah doesn't want Hagar or Ishmael in the household anymore. She wants them gone. 
But Abraham couldn't see what was happening because of his affections for his son Ishmael. Yes, Ishmael was still his son. Yes, born through sin, but Ishmael was still his son. A son that had grown up with him for 16 odd years. So all of this troubled Abraham. Now verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What is God doing here? See, he's directing things in such a way that the promised seed is protected. And so God says, in this instance, your wife is right. And listen to your wife, Abraham. Yes, the last time you listened to her, that ended up in failure. But you didn't consult me at the time. But now I'm telling you, listen to your wife. She's being wise about this. You're not seeing things right. Listen to your wife, Abraham, because Isaac is the promised child. The special covenant blessings and promises are to come to him and his descendants only. He alone will be your covenant heir. And even the promise of the land will go to Isaac and his offsprings. Ishmael will not have part of any of the covenant blessings. But then God also reassures Abraham about Ishmael. Verse 13, it says, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So God is saying, even though you've got to send Ishmael away, you know, it it might seem like, oh, he's not going to survive. But let me assure you, I will provide for him and I will take care of him. He will have a future. He will become a nation. He will not die out there by himself. And look at Abraham's response. So, Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. This would have been very hard for Abraham. His heart would have been totally broken to send his son Ishmael away. But still, I love what it says. It said, Abraham rose early in the morning. Why is that significant? It's not to say he was an early riser. It shows that he was prompt and quick to obey the Lord. Abraham is quick to obey the Lord regardless of his emotions and his affections. Why? Because he trusts God about what he has said about Ishmael, that God will take care of him and will have a future. And he's trusting God with that. And regardless of what his affections are, regardless of his emotions, he is trusting God and he does what he does and promptly obeys.
And now he sends Hagar and Ishmael with you know, enough food and water, enough for them to carry with them, and they wander out into the wilderness. Now look at what happens, verses 15 and 16. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. It's a really sad scene. And if you remember back in Genesis 16, when Hagar was pregnant with Ishmael, she ran away from Abraham's place and, and she was in the wilderness, if you remember, at that time, the Lord had appeared to her and then promised her a certain measure of blessing and future to Ishmael and comforted her and looked after her and told her to go back to Abraham's house. See, she wouldn't have survived on her own in the wilderness. And there, if you remember, in Genesis 16, she said, I have seen the one who looks after me and cares for me when the Lord had appeared to her. So during that time in Genesis 16, Hagar acknowledged that this God of Abraham looks after me. She acknowledged that. But what you don't see her doing right now is calling on that same God. They've run out of supplies. They don't have any water. She's left her teenage son under a thorny bush in the desert and she's sitting far away from him and she can't bear to see her son die. She's in a totally hopeless situation. And yet, you don't hear Hagar calling on the God of Abraham who she has known to take care of her. She would have even known, living under Abraham's household, how this God continues to take care of Abraham and the rest of his people. But she doesn't call on the Lord despite being in this desperate situation. But still, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Look at verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy... And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. I don't know if you caught the difference in verses 16 and 17. In verse 16, Hagar is the one who's crying. But you come to verse 17, it says that God heard not the voice of Hagar, but the voice of the boy. See, the text is pointing out here that the Lord did not hear the voice of Hagar precisely because Hagar did not cry out to the Lord. The Lord that she knew could take care of him, her and her son. But still, even though Hagar didn't do that, he graciously still hears the voice of her son who's probably crying or you know, taking his last breaths or whatever. And he comes and cares for both of them. 
verse 18 and 19. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. So first there's reassurance again given that Ishmael will have a future. He'll become a great nation. And then God provides them with water from a well. Now either you know, God just miraculously just you know, made a well appear out of nowhere or maybe just brought that well to their attention. Either way, he's provided water for them. And the Lord mercifully spares them from death. But he doesn't just take care of them at that moment. He takes care of them in an ongoing way. Look at verse 20. And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness, and he became an expert with the bow. So the Lord continued to be gracious and merciful to them. He sustained them. He protected them. And Ishmael then became an expert hunter. And then it says in verse 21, He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Hagar took a wife for Ishmael from Egypt from a godless pagan nation where Hagar originally came from. And what it shows is that despite the common grace and mercy that the Lord has continued to show Hagar and Ishmael, they had no concern for the God of Abraham or his plan of salvation through Abraham and his offspring. They don't embrace the God that has shown them great mercy and has taken care of them up till now. See, this is God's common grace to even those who reject Him in the world. He causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, the rain to fall on the wicked and the godly. This is the common grace of God. And yet, they rejected God, rejected His promise. But what you see here is even here, God's promise would not fail even to someone like Ishmael who has rejected God because he would grow up to be a great nation and kings and nations would come from him. God's word never failed. What can we learn from this? Well, God's plan of redemption is what's going on here, right? And it's a reminder again that God's redemption, His salvation is only by His grace through faith. It is not of human works. You cannot bring that about by human work. Because that's what Ishmael was, son of the flesh, trying to bring down God's favor, that plan of redemption by human works. But 
Isaac, on the other hand, he's the son of the promise, supernaturally born, just relying on the Lord, trusting in Him. And so that plan of redemption is moving forward that way. So it's a reminder to us again, salvation is not by human works, but by God's grace alone, through faith alone. But maybe, you know, those of us here as believers, we're like, yep, we get that. You know, I trust in His grace. It's not by human works. But how does that flesh out on a daily basis? And I've used this example uh, at least a few times. Uh, And I regularly still use that just in my thinking when I go through life. And it's the analogy that Jerry Bridges brings with regards to a good day and a bad day. He says he, you know, he talks about what a good day is. And it's like this, you, you know, as a believer, you get up, you have your time with the Lord, you're reading the word, you pray, uh, you know, you've been very loving towards your wife and maybe made a breakfast or or something else. Uh, And then you go on the road, you're nice to the people around, uh, you know, great day at work, you get to evangelize to somebody, uh, you come back, everything's great, then you go and gather with some of God's people and somebody asks you, hey, can you pray for us? And you pray. And so he says, that's a good day. And then he says, okay, let me tell you about a bad day. So you wake up in the morning, you get up late, you don't have time to read the word or pray, you fight with your wife, you go to work, uh, you know, on the road, you're just, you know, heavy traffic and you're just muttering and complaining all the way through. At work, you've had some, you know, major issues with other people. You don't evangelize when you've gotten the opportunity and then you come back home, you're still fighting with your wife and you're in a bad attitude and then you gather with God's people and somebody says to you, would you pray for us? And you say, I can't. Why? What's the difference between the two days? And Jerry Bridges goes on to say, Well, the problem is this. Sometimes on our good days, we think that we are accepted by God. That our salvation stands on the fact that we are living this way. And therefore, I have God's approval and I'm accepted by Him. And when we have a bad day, suddenly we think we're so unworthy of God's salvation and God's favor. And we can't come before Him and pray. Is there any time when we are worthy before the Lord? Oh. Sometimes on the good day, we appear to be more self-righteous. Then what are we relying on? On our works. Not on what Jesus has done. By grace, through faith alone. And on our bad days, what are we relying on? Again, our works, our unrighteousness. If on the good day, we're relying on the self-righteousness, on the bad day, we're relying on the unrighteousness. Rather than, 
on Jesus Christ by faith through, by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so that's how it often can play out in our lives. And it's so important to understand salvation is a work of God entirely. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. That alone is our anchor. And if we go back to works, what we do or don't do, we're going back to being like Ishmael. Where he's relying on, oh, I'm the heir of Abraham, the natural born son, and I have all these abilities, and he's resting on that. His ability, not trusting in God. And that's exactly the, what Paul gets at in Galatians 4 when he talks about this analogy and uses that to counter what this Jewish false, false teachers are trying to bring into the church where they're saying, oh, to be accepted by God, to be a Christian, you need to follow the law as well. You need, to f- uh, you need to be circumcised, follow the Sabbath and all these other things to really be a Christian. And Paul counters that and says, no, that's like saying you're denying the promise of God. You're not trusting by faith, but you're relying on human works. So here, what you see with Hagar and Ishmael they reject God they're not trusting in God they're not relying on him by grace alone through faith alone in God's word and his promise no Ishmael is just relying on his strength his aggressiveness the fact that he is a natural son of Abraham that's it has nothing to do with God and so here we see the word of promise rejected and lastly and we'll go through this quick God's promise reassured Now at this point, Abraham is probably grieved at the fact that he has to send away his firstborn son, Ishmael. So then this section then is a reminder and a reassurance and an encouragement to Abraham that all of God's promises will come to pass. Notice verse 22. At that time, at what time? When Isaac was weaned and Abraham had to expel Ishmael from his house in Hagar, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Yeah, this is that same Abimelech that we saw last week. The king of Gerar. Abraham didn't fare so well at the time. He was deceptive and he lied. But even in that situation, God showed himself to be powerful. And Abimelech at that time saw how God was with Abraham, taking care of Hagar, uh, taking care of Sarah, as well as Abraham. Now the king comes to Abraham to speak with him. And this is significant. Say, why? Because in that land, who's the king? Abimelech. 
He's the king. He's the superior. Kings in those days, they don't go to someone. No, if they're inferiors, they'll summon them to come to their, into their courts. So Abimelech, by going to Abraham, is showing that this king is recognizing that Abraham is someone greater than him. God is continuing to make Abraham a great name even here. And Abimelech says to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. I mean, he's seen how powerful this God of Abraham is when they first met in the previous chapter. Now he would have also heard of the humanly impossible, miraculous birth of Isaac, who is now two or three years old. So a few years have passed, and he may have heard other things about Abraham, knowing, hey, there's blessings after blessings with this guy, Abraham. Something very different about this guy. And he recognizes, oh, I think it's that God, that same God that I met in my dream in chapter 20. And so Abimelech recognizes God's blessing in Abraham's life and that God is with Abraham in all he does. I love that. Because here is from the mouth of an unbeliever to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. I see it, Abraham, in your life. I mean, God through an unbeliever is reminding Abraham, I am with you. I love that. So Abimelech says this, God is with you in all that you do. And then verse 23 and 24. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So this is what Abimelech is saying. In light of the fact that this Powerful God is with you. I want to make an agreement with you. Hey, because the last time I was in a lot of danger and all of my people, and that was because of you, and it was not even any fault of mine. I mean, you were the deceptive guy. So, you know, Abraham, Abimelech, knowing all this, he says, I want to make a covenant with you, a peace treaty with you, that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants. See, I want to be assured that I will be safe and my future generations will be safe. Hey, because this God of yours that's with you, he's a powerful God. And I don't want any harm with, from him. In fact, I'd like some protection, if anything. And so he says, I want to make a covenant with you according to the kindness that I've shown to you previously. Yes, you deceived me and I almost got killed, including my people, but I gave you all the riches still. Vindicated your wife. So just like that, be kind to me and I want to enter into this peace treaty with you. So Abraham agrees to this deal. But before this covenant is formalized, Abraham brings up an issue to Abimelech. Look at verse 25 and 26. When Abraham 
reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I have not heard of it until today. So here's what's happening. Abimelech has, wherever the, the, you know, the king had given place for him to stay, Abraham had dug up a well where he was living. And these, in these semi-arid regions, access to water, that was a big thing because water was so scarce. Water was a precious commodity for life and, and for the herds and the flocks. But then what's happened is some of Abimelech's servants forcefully took control over this well. And you can understand if you're a foreigner in a land, then it's easy for then tensions to rise with things like access to water where the locals will be like, oh, you're a foreigner, get out from here, this is ours. And so Abraham wants to make sure that he still has access to water. But then when Abraham says, this is what your servants has done, Abimelech pleads ignorance. That he knew nothing about it. And I love this. Because what God is doing here now is he's setting up things so that even pagan kings of enemy lands are going to protect Abraham and his household. I love that. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham sent, set seven ewes of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven new lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven new lambs that you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. So the covenant is, is formally made. You know, the, the sheep and oxen, quite likely, that they were the animals that were sacrificed and they did the whole walk through between the dead animals. But then after the covenant is formalized, Abraham now takes these seven ewe lambs. And what he's saying by this is, hey, this well that I talked about, that I dug out, this is my well. Yes, you own the entire land, but this is my well because I dug this well. And so the, through this exchange of seven new lambs, he's saying, Abimelech, as you accept these seven new lambs, you are agreeing that this well is mine and that my people, me and my people, will have total control over this well. Now look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore the place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. The word Beersheba, it just means well of oaths or it could even mean well of sevens. Really just to commemorate the fact that they made this covenant. They made this oath, and if it, if it means well of sevens, then even that exchange of seven new lambs may be there as well. And as, as part of the agreement is that ownership of this well belongs to Abraham. 
What's the significance of this? Well, two things I want you to note here. Abraham still doesn't own the land. And this land, the land of Gerar, the land of the Philistines, which is the southern part of the land of Canaan, is also part of the promise. And so by having access to water in this small region, do you know what happens when you, have, when you control water in a certain region and water is scarce? You are essentially then controlling that piece of land. Because nobody, because water is the source of life. And if other people can't access the water in that land, nobody's going to come there. And so you get control over the land in that sense. So what does this signify? It's a little glimpse of God's promise that Abraham and his offspring would inherit the land. He doesn't own it right now. Hey, but he's got some control of a small area now because he's in control of the water in that region. And then secondly, the fact that he's assured by this pagan king that he can live in peace in the land is another indicator, another glimmer of hope that this land promise that God has given to him and his descendants will come to pass. So really, when you think about it, in this chapter, God's promises are reassured to Abraham. Land, seed, and blessing. There's the birth of the seed. Then there's blessing that we saw. And now the promise of the land is more of a possibility now. God is advancing His redemptive plan. His promises are coming to pass. And so now Abraham in recognizing the goodness of God in all that he has done. Look at what he does, verses 33 and 34. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now what's a tamarisk tree? It's an evergreen tree. They're green le- they have green leaves all throughout the year. So the planting of this tree is a reminder of God's unfailing promises and blessings. Here's the evergreen tamarisk tree that will never fade. And there... It says, Abraham called on the name of the Lord and worshipped him and praised him and specifically called the Lord as the everlasting Lord. Because with everything that has happened in this chapter, Abraham is recognizing this God of mine. is faithful to keep his promises. His word does not change. His word does not fail. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are over everything, over the mishaps, over the failures, over my sorrows, over my joys, over my everything. 
And so I don't need to be concerned about any promise of God, whether it'll come to pass. Whether his plan of redemption will come to pass. What he's saying is, Lord, great is your faithfulness. And there's a sense in which Abraham's now come to a point where he gets it. This is who God is. He is the everlasting God. I fully trust this good and wonderful God. He will do only good. And he will fulfill his promises. As I close, If there's anyone here who's not a Christian, I want to ask you this. Oh, I want to say this to you. God will keep his word. He will keep his every promise. He has promised that he will come, the Lord Jesus will come one day to judge the living and the dead. That's a promise. And that will come true. It will not fail. Just like every other promise, everything else that God has said. And if you reject the Lord Jesus, and if you are still clinging to your own abilities or your own worldly pleasures and whatever else and trying to play the game here, my friend, let me tell you, you will be found wanting on that final day and you will be cast down into the lake of fire. God has said it. And it will happen. But let me also tell you this. God, because he's gracious and he's loving and he's kind and he's merciful, sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he promised over the years. And at the appointed time, not a day late, not a day early, at his appointed time, the Lord Jesus was born as a tiny babe to a virgin named Mary. And he grew up as a man, living a righteous life in this filthy world. And then he died on the cross. Taking on himself the judgment for sinful people like you and me. And he died. And then he rose on the third day defeating sin and death and providing a way by which sinners like you and me can be forgiven. Friend, let me tell you, Jesus has promised if you come to him, if you genuinely come to him, he will not in any way cast you out. You can sit here and listen to this week after week, after week, after week. And yet, if you simply hear it and you walk out and it has done nothing here, and you continue to reject the Lord Jesus, you reject his hand of mercy and grace, you will be like Ishmael and Hagar, who experience the kindness and the mercy and the grace of the Lord repeatedly, and yet rejected him. Turn to him this day. And if you see and if you're leaving confidence in yourself and your 
filthiness and whatever else and you're turning and you're coming to the Lord Jesus and you recognize who He is and what He has done, then I would say, and you say, yes, I believe He is my Savior and He is my Lord. He is my everything. Then I would say to you, then turn away from your sin and continue to follow after the Lord Jesus because that's the evidence that you have truly put your faith in Him and you're relying on Him. For those of us who are Christians, let me just say this. Every promise of God will come to pass. God's word will never fail. He is faithful to the very end. So let these words of, let the word of God and his promise fill our minds and our hearts. And let it cause us to be steadfast. Let it cause us to worship our Lord, thinking about His faithfulness, and let that be our anchor as we live as aliens in this world till the Lord Jesus comes back. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that every promise of Yours that You make, everything that You say will come to pass. No jot or tittle will go to the side of what You have said everything will be accomplished. Lord, we pray that we would, as believers, be assured by that, that we would marvel as your faithfulness to weak, frail people like us. But it would cause us to then further rely on you, rely on the Lord Jesus, to rely on the word of God. And it would cause us to live lives to make much of you. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.